The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hey everyone, welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Kabir joining me today. So hi Kabir, can you give me a brief introduction about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your hobbies, where you're from, and your future plans. Hi Natasha, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. My name is Kabir, I am 16 years old and I live in Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm currently in grade 10, so I'm a high school student um, and have um, three years left of my high school education in South Africa. Some of my hobbies are sort of music and aviation. Those are two main interests that I have. And um, music has a really interesting link with my condition, which I hope we'll get to some point in the episode. I have um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis is my primary chronic rheumatic condition. And then I have some subsequent chronic illnesses such as POTS, which is called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So your school year is not from September, it's from January. January to December. So your summer holidays are in December? Yes. Our summer holidays run for the month of December. That's so our Christmas is very hot and sunny. That is very interesting compared to someone who lives in Canada. <laughs> so it's winter holidays because it's snowing. You mentioned your diagnoses already uh, and we have a lot to get through. So when were you diagnosed with JIA and when were you diagnosed with POTS? So I was diagnosed with arthritis in October of 2021. I had symptoms coming from about March, February, March of that year. Um, and it was a very complicated diagnosis for me as someone who hasn't had a chronic condition diagnosis before. And I've had symptoms of POTS from about maybe January of 2022 and was only diagnosed at about September time of 2022. So those both diagnoses happened about a year apart in similar parts of the year, which is actually very funny. Do you think that they're linked in a way? There's not a lot known about POTS. So initially, my doctor told me it's dysautonomia, which means it's sort of like an affected nervous system, which causes symptoms like dizziness and fainting and nausea. Um, but there's not that much known about it. So we didn't really whittle down the diagnosis to POTS for a while until I saw a pediatric cardiologist. And there's talk that there's a link with POTS and autoimmunity. And because juvenile arthritis is an autoimmune condition, it is definitely possible that that had a part. And certainly my medications and all of those factors were contributing to my POTS symptoms and diagnosis. So you experience symptoms of IVD, you have POTS and you have juvenile arthritis. Once they figured out you had juvenile arthritis, it was like, okay, well, that's a lot of inflammation. So the IBD probably goes hand in hand with that. So we don't have to explore it further. So you see a gastroenterologist and a rheumatologist? Yeah, so I saw I saw gastroenterologist for the foundations of my diagnosis. And then again, after I was diagnosed with arthritis to double check if it was officially IBD, which we still couldn't find. 
And then I see my rheumatologist, a pediatric rheumatologist as well throughout my sort of management of my condition. And I saw a pediatric cardiologist to check whether my dysautonomia was POTS. And so once we discovered that I had POTS, he sort of gave us a way to keep POTS under control. And I haven't had a need to really see him again, luckily. So would you say that your symptoms are managed for both the conditions? Not at all. So I think because everything is so intertwined, it's very impossible to tell. And I think it's a problem most chronic illness patients have is, is this a side effect of a medication? Is it a symptom from which of the numerous conditions? And if so, does that mean I'm flaring? So for me, I went through a very difficult JIA phase. I started on methotrexate, which is the sort of baseline treatment for juvenile arthritis here in pill form when I was first diagnosed. And that sort of started to assist my pain and sort of assisted just a little. Not enough for me to fully notice, but enough for my rheumatologist to notice. And then we had some sort of COVID exposures or viral infections in my family. And that meant I had to get off my medication. And as soon as that happened, which has now happened about three times from my diagnosis period to now, my medication has stopped responding. So we moved from methotrexate pulls to methotrexate injections, which I do myself every Friday. And when those stopped responding, I'm now on a biologic called Humira, which is a sort of higher treatment for arthritis. But that treatment started working and I had a whole lot of hope um, in about August in 2022. And as soon as I came home from a nice holiday in the States in August, my whole immune system flared again, and it hasn't resorted to an improved state. But the interesting thing is that the biologic Humira is used to treat Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which is inflammatory bowel disease. So the idea was if I did have that, it would be a mild case and the biologic would take care of that. So for the most part, the biologic takes care of those um, symptoms rather, just not the arthritis ones. The only thing I can say is safely under control for the most part is my POTS because I treat it with lifestyle and drinking electrolytes and water and um, using tools like that. So no real medications. And luckily that's worked out for me so far. That's really good to hear, even though you are still experiencing symptoms, but you mentioned you inject yourself with your methotrexate on Fridays. How did you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to do this for myself and I'm going to inject myself because that's what I need to do. Did you have any like obstacles or barriers to get to that point? So for me, I always, I mean, I knew about the injections because I think at that point when I started, I was just working, you know, as I was doing ambassador at Take It Pain Check with you guys. And I was seeing the sort of fun fact Fridays we were producing about methotrexate and things. So I knew that injections existed. So I was mentally prepared that, oh my gosh, one day if my arthritis doesn't settle down, I'll need to do an injection. I'm also someone who's really interested in the sort of biology side of things and sort of healthcare side of things. And so I think I was never scared to inject it, but the real problem came in is as I kept injecting, I would get more side effects. And so I'd associate things like the alcohol swab, which you rub on before your injection with my nausea, because that also happened to be a nausea relief because I was, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so you associate the side effects you're about to experience as you're trying to inject a dose. 
And so that became difficult. The worst part was not injecting necessarily, but it was drawing it up from a vial because they're not pre-measured. So you have to do everything from scratch. And so I've just gotten off methotrexate as a sort of experiment. And in the last few weeks I was on it, my mom would draw it out the vial because otherwise I'd feel really, really ill and I would still inject it. I also have to inject my Humira, which is much easier. So I do Humeras on Saturdays. And that is 10 times easier because it's just a sort of pen and you put it in your thigh and it's an auto injector and I get very few side effects from it. Um, so that is much easier than methotrexate for sure. Are auto injectors for methotrexate not available in South Africa? No, I've only ever heard of auto injectors when I visited my family in the States. And we actually tried to get some prescription of those, which became kind of complicated. But those seem just much more efficient um, and also safer for the patient because they're pre-measured. Whereas here, you're kind of left to your own devices. You have to take a big needle and draw up to the correct mark. And then if you travel, the sort of pressure on the vial changes. And so it becomes a messy job if you haven't done it for a long time. Yeah. And I always think it increases the risk of you putting too little or too much in. But I always get someone to double check my dosage before I do it. That is so responsible of you. <laughs> like, that's really good. That's interesting that you don't have auto injectors for methotrexate, but you do have them for like Humira. But I'm wondering, what is the healthcare system like in South Africa? Because I already see like an example of what is different from here in North America. So the, the thing about South Africa's healthcare system is like many around the world, it's it, that's a very loaded question. So South Africa's healthcare system is split into two parts. You have the public healthcare system and the private healthcare system. And so under the constitution of South Africa, anyone who is ill is able to walk into a public healthcare facility and get treatment for free. That's the idea. They can walk into a clinic, a hospital, or any sort of public health place. Um, but in reality, that can't really happen because like most places in Africa, South Africa has um, lack of resources, which means we've got very few beds, even though we have truly excellently trained doctors in both the public sphere and the private sphere, they are struggling with resources. So there are few beds, there are oversupply of patients, there's a lack of um, medical supplies, and that becomes increasingly difficult for a patient to access care which means if you have money, you are more likely to go to enough money, rather, you're more likely to go to a private facility. Um, but that also means that you're paying for everything out of pocket. So then what South Africa has is the equivalent to America's sort of health insurance, which we call medical aid. Um, but the problem with medical aid, like health insurance, is um, you have to pay your premiums every month. And that's not a cheap affair. It can become quite expensive. And you still deal with problems that are seen in the US system where, you know, you have to get things pre-authorized and approved. And especially for biologic medications, if you're in a public healthcare system, it's nearly impossible to get access to those. And even from a private standpoint, when I had to do the biologics, they're so expensive that you are required to get x-rays, blood tests, a full write-up to the South African Rheumatology Association to prove that you failed enough other medications to move on to and justify medical aid or someone else paying for your monthly biologic. 
So it's a complicated system. In theory, we should have free healthcare, but it unfortunately just doesn't turn out that way. Have you experienced any barriers personally in terms of like accessing your medications or has everything been smooth for you? So for me, I'm lucky to come from a, a well-off family with enough money that we can afford medical aid and um, private healthcare. So I've gone through the private system but like I say, even through the private system, we had moments where we'd be like, you know, a day before procedure trying to diagnose my GI issues, we're trying to get it pre-authorized by the medical aid and they wouldn't do it. And it was complicated because you're trying to prep for the procedure and you're not even sure if they're going to pay for it yet. So things like that, which I know is quite common in places in North America, has been the barrier. But for me, the biggest barrier, luckily, and I'm thankful for it as much as it's crazy to think that, is medical, sort of medical gaslighting and going through numerous doctors. That's been the barrier to my diagnosis because my symptoms were so bizarre. They were not immediately joint pain. There were random stomach problems that one doctor wrote off as irritable bowel syndrome, which is different to inflammatory bowel disease. And they basically told me, you'll learn to live with it. You must suck it up and just get used to going to school and being okay with it. There was no practical solution to the problem. So you have to try another gastroenterologist and eventually a pediatric one who was the only doctor, I think, from my first run of doctors who took me seriously and really tried without fail to get me the diagnosis I was looking for. And even then, she couldn't get me the diagnosis, but eventually referred me to a pediatric rheumatologist. Because at that point, I started having joint pain and there really wasn't anything to suggest it was another chronic illness. And so, you know, when in doubt, you call the rheumatologist and that's how I was able to get diagnosed. So that has been the barrier for me. And I'm very lucky to say that it, that it is the barrier for me. A lot of people, especially in America, they have a really big issue in terms of accessing medications and the cost of medications, whereas in Canada, it's different and so i haven't had too many barriers but you did mention that you know you need to get kind of proof that you have failed medications to be able to go to the next one and i actually had to do that as well because i failed a lot of the kid medications or pediatric medications so my rheumatologist made sure that you know there was paperwork done that showed that i could try adult medication and so I, I completely understand, like, it's just a lot of hassle. You have to wait a lot of weeks for that paperwork to be approved. And then sometimes you have to do like TB tests or blood tests and just, you know, your disease could progress and flare and all this stuff. So it does take time, but luckily for me, it didn't take that much time, but I see how that could be like hard for other people whose disease is maybe even more active. That's exactly it. So, you know, here, especially in South Africa, we have high TB rates. So that was one of the most important tests was to check you don't have TB because as you know, biologics and TB don't mix and it becomes really dangerous. And I know kids who were on biologics and were doing super well and got TB from, you know, just general exposure and, you know, have permanent joint damage from that. So, you know, we had to be careful about those things. But the bigger thing to note about it is that um, most people are not necessarily in big built up urban suburbs with vast amount of wealth to push for access to the medications and they need others to push for them. So we have so many barriers here that there are children here who require biologics 
but they are sort of from a poorer background or they're in the public healthcare system. And so it's hard to get them access to those medications. And I feel that, you know, the drug companies, all of those people manufacturing drugs for people with chronic illnesses need to think about how to adapt their medications from a North American standpoint, where they were designed for, into a sort of African standpoint or other country international view. So for instance, we've had problems here with children who don't have a fridge in their house or who struggle with the cold chain because we have load shedding, which is where government cuts off electricity to save the grid from collapse. And so that means if you don't have access to a cold place, you know, you lose your efficacy of your Humera, for example. That's something that they should make a solution for. And I know that some of these companies have like payment plans in America because they need it. But that doesn't mean that payment plans or an alternative are not needed here. Just because some people can access these expensive medications doesn't mean that it's right because not everyone has access to these medications. And, you know, you can live in a really rural area with one little public clinic and maybe a private hospital. But if you don't have money for that private hospital or medical aid or access to the medication, there's no way you're going to get the medication easily. So at most, you might be able to get methotrexate and some cortisone of some kind or something like that, that is basic and easily accessible. But even methotrexate is sometimes difficult to access, which makes treatment a lot harder. You need to make treatment accessible for people to feel that their illness can improve and to literally make the illness improve. And also the maintenance of it. You brought up the fact that sometimes you didn't put the medication in the fridge, right? And if you don't have a fridge, how is that going to work, right? So there's so much more to just, you know, some people being able to access the medication or even be, being able to buy it because there's the maintenance aspect of it, right? You can have medication, but if it's not under the right conditions or doesn't work properly, then how how is that going to be beneficial to your health? Thanks so much for bringing up all those sort of barriers and challenges that people in South Africa face, and I'm sure that other people in other countries face as well. It's just not something that a lot of pharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies prioritize. It needs to change. So I think it's good that we're having this conversation. So hopefully someone watching can make some change. <laughs> and maybe you can even be the one in the future that makes this change, Kabir. I just want to say that there's one, one more thing I forgot to mention, which I think is a problem elsewhere as well, is that South Africa has 11 official languages. English is widely spoken, but there are many, many more languages. And so a barrier that some people will have access to care that uh, the nonprofit I'll speak later about, Arthritis Kids South Africa, is looking to combat is the easy access to information in multiple languages in very visual ways so that everyone is able to understand the signs and symptoms of juvenile arthritis or how medications work or, you know, why not to be scared of medications, things like that. You know, if it's in your home language, they know big words. It's very understandable. It's very easy to read and comprehend. Whereas if you're trying to lead, read in a language that's not familiar to you, it's very difficult and makes the process a lot more daunting. Wow, I just learned a new fact about South Africa. Like I hadn't I had absolutely no idea. Like here in Canada it's English and French and that's it. And so either you know English, you know French or I mean most people that come here they have to do a test, like a language test, and if you don't pass that, you don't get to be a citizen here. So it's crazy because you need 
all that information for patients to understand in all those languages and that takes resources. We just talked about the lack of resources in South Africa, so it's so important that we get those resources to be able to knowledge translate or spread the word about what their condition is because we talk a lot about education and like patient education, but it always starts from like home, right? And like understanding the language itself. And if there's a barrier that, you know, only some of that information is in a certain language, then that is going to be really hard for a patient to understand their own condition. And then I think that also plays a part in terms of advocacy, which we'll talk about. If you're not able to explain your own disease to yourself or comprehend it, how are you going to be able to spread the word and explain it to other people if you can't advocate for yourself how are you gonna first advocate for yourself in other situations i'm sure that a lot of people go to school go to work and if they're unable to say what they have or explain how it works then they can't get the accommodations that they need and they can't advocate for what they need and i'm curious to know like how did you tell people in your family and friends i know you speak english so you, you probably did not have that barrier at all. How did you tell your friends and your family about your condition? I definitely had ups and downs. I'm still having ups and downs because I think generally there's just a lack of understanding in the community that young people can get chronic illnesses. Young people can be disabled. You can look just like me and be walking fine and be looking great and trying to be work hard at school and doing all these things like everyone around you. And you can still have a disability. And that's something really hard to drill into people, especially people your age or people who are not family. I'm lucky that my family are accepting. There's some extended family who maybe didn't know properly. And uh, once I started resharing, take a paycheck posts on social media as part of my ambassador program and hosting different things, that was actually a way that a lot of them found out about chronic illnesses, that I had a chronic illness, and, you know, about take a paycheck and how us nonprofits are trying to push our agenda of being able to have proper education for people about these conditions. But in terms of friendships, it was difficult and it is difficult because it's not normal. As much as we want to make it seem okay, it's like not all these people at your school have arthritis or have a chronic illness. Very few have. And so even when I was trying to sort of convince the school nurse after a whole conversation with my school about these are the accommodations I need, she insisted that I walk up like three flights of stairs just to see her and her to say, okay, so obviously you must be fine. You look fine. I just wanted to say hello and say, you must be fine. That was the conversation. Fair to say, I have never gone back to the school nurse for that reason. Not that I needed it, but friends also mock you and ridicule you, right? So I had people who just call me that arthritis boy. And that doesn't make me feel, you know, valued as a person. I don't like it when people look at you and say, aha, he has arthritis. That's who he is. I want to be my personality and other things I'm good at. I don't want to be defined by a diagnosis. As much as I have to acknowledge my diagnosis and make the most of it and do what I can do and say, oh, today's a really flaring day. I'm not going to play my instrument because my fingers are so sore. I need to also be me, right? I just want to be a teen in high school. That becomes hard in this environment. You know, high schoolers are, are brutal. And so um, there are some friends who are sort of in denial about it, who just don't understand, but also don't want to understand. Because I think the more that they understand, 
it sort of makes them realize that I have something wrong. Oh if, my if god, not- they are not your friends. <laughs> Fair enough, but they are they are definitely I do have a good bunch of friends who are sort of acknowledging of it and will look after for me and say you shouldn't be moving all those music stands you should just sort of take a break if you need to and will ask about my condition and will you know they want to understand how it works and so you really get the flip side and that's what happens when you get a chronic illness right you start to see who is actually your friend and who's really just pretending to be your friend so that's certainly a very interesting part of it but i'm lucky to have enough good friends that it really outweighs the bad ones you know in grade 9 well i was diagnosed in grade 8 but at that point i moved schools and all that and in grade 9 you have so many friends and then you slowly wean off and you know have the close group of friends in grade 12 because you realize that There are only a certain amount of people in this group that actually care about you and that will actually accommodate you when you need help living with your condition. And in university specifically, I had to tell my lab partner I had arthritis because I have a note-taking assistant and she sits beside me and so that's an awkward conversation. My lab partner's probably being like, "Who's this girl sitting beside us?" right? So That's a point in time where I kind of need to tell my lab partner, "Hey, like I have arthritis, my hands are going to hurt. I might need some extra help, but I can do the calculations on a calculator and you can maybe do the pipetting or like the actual chemistry techniques that are repetitive." And she was so nice. She's like, "Yeah, like I'll be your second hand. Like don't worry about it." And it's very rare that you find people like that, right? And so It was really nice to know that I was able to first very quickly tell someone that I had arthritis and second their response to it was great. And that's how I knew that the more you get into life, the more mature people are. There will still be immature people, but you just don't need to associate yourself with them. But I just found that advocating for myself and also talking to people about it um makes such a big difference. Basically, you'll have a lot of friends here and there and you will deal with bullies. I know I dealt with bullies in like grade 8 and grade 9, but it it gets better and I haven't really dealt with it in the past couple of years. I think that's also because I have learned how to advocate for myself and I also know who to associate myself with. And I think that's what you were kind of talking about. Yes, you have like really good friends and you also have people that, you know, you're acquaintances with because you have to be acquaintances with them. That's absolutely it. I mean, so I I guess this conversation also leads to like accommodations. Um, you know, you with your lab partner and that's great that you had a supportive partner in that. It took a long time for me to get accommodations. Eventually, it was really bad and I couldn't hold stuff properly and my fingers were really sore, and eventually my rheumatologist said, "Okay, what if you get to grade 12, which is what we call matric, and in your final exam, you have a really bad flare-up and now you can't write your final paper?" we need a plan for that and so we developed this sort of set of accommodations that'll go to the school board across the country and mostly for me they include typing and a bit of extra time if i handwrite but that also means that i took a lot of persuasion of teachers to say i'm going to use my laptop you can trust me with it i'm simply just taking notes but that means everyone in the class knows that you have a problem because you're typing on your laptop when they're writing and when you go for an exam you are in a separate venue to them so it creates these these barriers and it creates the sort of false understanding about what's actually happening which is an interesting standpoint as well so often i don't explain but then i'll have to explain when people are like why are you typing why are you typing you shouldn't be using your laptop you shouldn't be 
doing that. And you just have to do it in like a one sentence. I have this thing which affects my joints. My hands are sore today. I can't write. That's sort of how I got around that factor. But you're absolutely right. And I had teachers um, who in the first phase were like, oh, don't worry, Kavira. It's just a short page. This is a history test. And so it's like essay type questions. It's just a class test. It's 10 marks. But those 10 marks are like a full page of A4 writing. And I was foolish enough just to say, okay, it'll be fine because I trusted him. And I found out, you know, it was for his convenience. My hands were really bad. I couldn't write for another three days after that test. And then he had he had the audacity to try it again oh later on. Once we had an intervention to say, you have to let me type. He was like, oh, the printer wasn't working. And there was like a firewall or some, some arbitrary tech excuse. That was really just his way of saying, I'm too lazy to print your paper. And eventually... You know, for the big things I said, screw it. I'm sorry. I'm just going to type. I'm going to email it to you. If you really struggle to print it, I will print it for you. And that's okay. Yeah, you had to let it go, right? Because <laughs> how long can you do this to a student? I was going to go to someone and complain about it. So you have to learn to advocate for yourself. And I guess for me, being part of organizations like Take a Pain Check, it shows me how to advocate for myself because it just happens. You know, when you work, I, what I love about Take a Pain Check is that everyone has sort of a rheumatic disease connection. Even if they don't actually have the condition, they're interested in it. And that means I could say to you, I'm so sorry, Natasha, my fingers are just really bad and I'm flaring and it's uncomfortable. Please just give me an extra day extension. And I think doing that in a friendly environment helped me to build confidence when asking to people who I didn't trust. For sure. And I also want to bring up that I said the whole lab partner thing, but there's also been awkward situations for me too, you know, like I remember in high school when I entered the classroom and everyone could do their dictation for music on the paper and sat there and didn't do anything. And so eventually people came up to me and they were like, they kind of all got the hint that there was something going on with me. I decided to accept that because I was like, you know what, I don't care. I just want to get this over with. And but it's hard for people like in gym class, I had alternative exercises to do. And it was embarrassing. Like I was in the back doing something like yoga while everyone else was doing something else. The same thing that you mentioned about the handwriting things. This was like a couple of weeks ago. I had a French teacher that gave me this uh, paper, which everyone has to write handwrite their information. You know, if they need accommodations, so I started writing and then I realized, oh, this is going to be like a lot of writing. Like, I don't think I could do it. So I started typing and the professor comes around and she's like, oh, like you can just handwrite it, you know, you don't need to type it. And I was like, okay, like it's so awkward. And also there's only nine people in the class. So I'm just like, I can't really tell her I have arthritis right now. Like that's just gonna be very awkward. What I ended up doing is I answered as many questions as I could, which honestly I'm kind of so mad about because I wanted to type it. But every single time I pulled out my laptop, she looked at me awkwardly. And at the bottom where it said to write a paragraph in French, I said, I'll email you this paragraph. <laughs> so it showed that I, so basically it showed that I wrote something down and I was like, I'll email it to you. I feel like if I am opening my laptop and I'm doing work, can you not see that I'm still doing the work in a different format? Like, why do you need to be so awkward about it? You know, there's just such a difference uh, in different classes and accommodations and different years of your life, but it kind of gets better. 
No, I hope so. I hope so. But it is, I, I get the thing with the backlog, right? Because I was on a webinar with someone talking about sort of public schools and using technology in South Africa to help people with disabilities. And they were talking about things like autism um, and other conditions that require specifically technology. And there was a minister who was like responsible for this whole program on this webinar. So I decided, let me pose a question about chronic pain. And what does this mean? They made some sort of weird comment about how it's the only people who can get accommodations are people with sort of learning disabilities and things like that. So I made a comment on the chat about what about chronic pain? Like if someone has arthritis and they literally cannot hold a pen, what are you going to do for them immediately? Because are they just not going to participate in school or are you going to give them a plan? And this person in question was so stumped that uh, they misunderstood the question completely, gave a completely different response that was unrelated to the question. And then the sort of moderator of this debate who had obviously understood it because she's a professional in accommodations, vaguely mentioned it again. And then the whole thing fell away and the conversation went straight to other forms of disability. Um, and I used the word invisible disability and chronic pain and arthritis, obviously. But I think that invisible disability thing doesn't strike most people. And so I can, my fingers look, okay, they look pretty swollen, but they, they're okay. I can hold a cup if I really want to, I can do things, but um, I actually cannot write a paragraph right now. Um, and so, but a teacher can't see that, right? No one can see that unless I start writing a paragraph, in which case it's in terrible handwriting. And then they complain about your handwriting, right? So it's, um, I think we need, we need to speak more about invisible disabilities and how they can be affect, you know, your classroom life and accommodations generally. I've definitely talked about this on other podcast episodes, but we talk yeah. mainly about like, for example, diabetes or cancer or autism. But a lot of people don't know that young people get arthritis and the whole purpose of this podcast and a lot of the work that a lot of organizations are doing is to raise awareness that this is what children, youth, young adults, adults, grandparents, everyone, literally anyone of every age can get, right? And so the more conversations we have about this condition, the more hopefully we can get it into media and get it into schools, into play so that there is less stigma around arthritis and only old people getting it. You briefly mentioned the lifestyle changes that you've made since being diagnosed with arthritis. What lifestyle changes have you made ever since being diagnosed with arthritis? So for me, the lifestyle changes mostly consist of my POTS treatment, which is only lifestyle changes. And that for me, because of my heart rate and because of the way it looks in me, as usual, it's an individual thing. Someone this might not work for, but it works for me is I increase my fluid intake and electrolyte intake. Uh, I drink massive sort of liter bottles of water. If it's really bad, I will take sort of little salt tablets, which are really just sodium chloride <laughs> in a tablet form that is quite concentrated. I'm generally trying to eat more healthy and sort of just get in a more healthy space because I want to be really fit and I want to just be in a good sort of fitness space. But I haven't been able to do sports since my diagnosis or since my symptoms properly started. So that's two and a bit years now. Um, and so I will go through phases of like increasing my walking in the day, which feels great at the time. And then I'm in complete flair for a long time afterwards. 
So it's really complicated for me to get back into exercises. And I know there are other guests we've had on the podcast that have similar experiences and there's some that can miraculously do it. And I think it's really personal. Like I'm also not a sporty person naturally. So sport is not something I enjoy. Music is the real thing I enjoy. Music is just as hard for me though, because I play violin. I'm currently picked up the trumpet, which is very arthritis friendly, except in the sort of arm tendons. How is it arthritis friendly? I used to play trumpet and it was painful. So I, then they put me on drums and I was like, this is not better. So I ended up doing nothing. <laughs> put it this way. It is um, more arthritis friendly than violin. Oh yeah. Not for that sure. I put it. Um, but for me, you know, my fingers are always inflamed. And there's a misunderstanding. I play in my symphony orchestra at school and most ensembles as a string player. And um, generally, I just have to keep doing it because I'm not sporty. I'm okay at academics. That's all fine. But it's the thing that keeps me happy. And so whether or not that brings me into pain for me is a personal decision that I have to keep up my playing of various forms of music um, to keep my mental health happy and stable, uh, even if that means compromising my joints. And so that's, you know, the trade-offs that you have to make. But that also means for me, getting into sports is difficult, right? I'm not naturally sporty. I don't enjoy it to start with, but I still want to be fit because, you know, it's also high school. So most of your friends are like on this sort of fitness high and are all about gymming and running and you know how it goes. <laughs> it's like grade 10 and I don't want to be them, but I just want to be able to do something small, even if that is like a consistent walk every day. Um, but sometimes your condition doesn't allow for that. And so you just have to play with what you've got. That's so relatable to me. And I know we've had conversations about music and how that's kind of a form of escapism for us. And we shared this while we were discussing a little bit about this video posted on Versus Arthritis, where there was this little boy named William who has JIA and he actually kept going to the cathedral to sing because it helped him with his pain. And so I think there is so much to do with music and how that could be a way to escape, a way to, there's also music therapy that exists. So there is some research done on music and how that could be therapeutic for people. I know for me, whenever I went to get my infusions, I used to just listen to music because I was stressed. And sometimes, you know, when I am stressed, I either sing, I listen to music, like music will always be part of my life. And I'm so glad that you are trying to find ways to adapt how you can still maintain that music part in your life and that it'll still be there. It kind of shows how passionate you are. So I remember that conversation because that video, um, you know, people should really watch it if they're interested in music and chronic illness. It really resonated with me. If you excuse the musical pun over there, um, because I sing as well as sort of one of my instruments, if you put it that way. And even though that's not taxing arthritis wise, maybe besides the standing and the sort of performance oh, yeah. aspect, it's such a good way to sort of get away from arthritis, but also learn to adapt with arthritis because playing an instrument is a way for me to move my finger joints. Um, and sort of, you know, violin playing is very much about the whole body. You know, it's everything from your elbow and your fingers to your knees. It's all about um, being sort of with the instrument and with the music. And so the ability to be able to sort of loosen everything. And because you're playing, you're forgetting about the pain for that split second. But that also means I take music as a subject at my school. So I get marked on my performances. And that becomes complicated for me. 
because I will practice and perfect a piece for months. And on one performance day, I will have a complete flare up and suddenly the runs on my instrument are not possible. And they look really messy in front of people. And you don't want to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I have arthritis. I'm um, trying my best. Enjoy my music. <laughs> you, you can't do that. <laughs> the other thing I get frequently, actually, is people think I use it as an excuse, my yeah. arthritis. Like you're typing. Actually, if you get to type in the same time that we get to write our test, that means you're getting an advantage. If you get to redo your performance, you're getting an advantage. And I try to drum into people, <laughs> the musical pun, that arthritis is its a disadvantage for us. There might be one or two things that we learn from it. But at the end of the day, typing or using accommodations is our way of being equal with an able-bodied person. But I see, you know, that concept is hard for a lot of people to understand. It definitely is. I find that a lot of people are like, oh my God, you're so lucky you get extra time. Well, do you know that I have to go and now explain to someone who doesn't know chemistry what chemistry is and what to write on that paper? I feel like a lot of people don't know the challenges we have to go through, like speaking chemistry. That is not easy. I would rather just draw or write and it's so much easier, right? But a lot of people think of it as it's an advantage to have arthritis. No, because it's not an advantage to wake up in pain every day and deal with that pain 24 seven and then get injected like a couple times a week. It's just not fun. I know I had that a lot in high school specifically. Getting out of gym is an excuse, you know what I mean? Like a lot of that happened in high school, not so much in university, but I, I definitely see that. And I will link that video down below for anyone who wants to watch what we're talking about. The little boy's so cute. It was just such a moving and inspirational video that, you know, you can find escapism and you can find your passion even if you have some sort of condition. Yes, you have the medication, but there's just so much more that can help you with pain relief or pain management. Let's jump into your initiative. What initiatives have you been involved in to create arthritis awareness? For me, initially, I was, you know, I was newly diagnosed and I wasn't, I didn't know initiatives existed, really. I, you know, there were these posters saying one in a thousand kids get juvenile arthritis in South Africa. And you then think of yourself as a number. I'm one in a thousand. And if there are a thousand in my school, that means I'm the only one. So that was an isolating point in my life. And so it brought me to initiatives when I became confident. I founded a, a teenager juvenile arthritis WhatsApp group, um, which is like a group chat that we use as a support group, but we use it as a place for people to rant about their friends or their teachers or share their experiences, their struggles, um, their nerves. And I founded it in partnership with a local organization called Arthritis Kids South Africa, which specifically caters to children with juvenile idiopathic arthritis in the country. We have a really diverse range of people on there. We have people who are in public healthcare systems, private healthcare systems, people who live in rural areas or cities across the country. I produced a video for World Arthritis Day with um, Arthritis Kids South Africa, which I think we can link below as well. And it features um, four of us from varying sort of age categories and um, cultures and locations in the country talking about what World Arthritis Day means to them. And um, the themes that come up are really critical. Um, and so that video was also a very important moment for me, advocacy-wise, 
And I was really proud to have the Juvenile Arthritis Research Project, or known as the JAR Project in the UK, um, reshare um, our content and use it as part of their own um, World Arthritis Day um, promotional content. Um, so that's also really um, exciting stuff. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. So you were previously an ambassador for Take a Pain Check and you're currently our webmaster. So let me know your Take a Pain Check story or journey. What got you involved? Why did you decide to get involved? All of that fun stuff. So for me, it was a really random story and it was probably the best story of the past three years altogether, um, which was I was scrolling Instagram in the car and it was a really high pain day. And out of the blue, I saw your face on one video. It was like one Instagram reel. And it was like, you know, do you have, I could not believe what I was hearing. Do you have juvenile arthritis? Do you want to find community? Sign up on our Google form to like find out what you can do. I don't think the ambassador program was like a month old when I came, I think it was fairly recent. And so when I, as soon as I launched on the website, I finally understood that there's a community of people like me or who are similar to me. So I joined as an ambassador as like quickly as possible and um, was engaging with you a lot uh, on social media to understand how it works and should I do it? Should I not do it? How would it work? Because I'm in a different time zone, things I wouldn't have thought about before. Um, and my journey as an ambassador was really sort of fulfilling because I started sharing all the posts and participating in things and started realizing that there was an effect to it. So from that ambassador program, and I spoke in a sort of Zulu competition, which is the language we speak in South Africa, the biggest language, I think, besides English. And it was the first time I spoke out publicly about my disability was because I developed the confidence from sharing content on Take a Pain Check. And so once I sort of progressed as an ambassador, you opened it up for executive applications and I saw it as a sort of self-growth opportunity to become more confident in advocacy and understanding, I guess, the North American side of things as well. I've got a lot of family in um, the US and some family in Canada, but I've never been able to experience what it looks like for you on that side. And so um, I signed up as an executive and I'm now the webmaster very happily for several months now. And we've been part of a lot of exciting, cool projects as a team. Um, and it was really exciting times for me. And things like transition clinics, which are something we don't have in South Africa, which I think are an excellent idea now that I'm sort of approaching that transition age, I wouldn't have learned about if it wasn't for Take a Pain Check. So it really sort of diversifies your view about chronic illness and gives you that fulfilling community, which is excellent. I actually didn't know about that one video that you saw. So that means that our TikTok makes a difference. So follow our TikTok and Instagram if you can. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of ambassadors that we currently have are actually found us through like TikTok or Reels, which is very amazing to me. It's so great to have you on our team. That's the thing about Take a Pain Check. When I came in, it was very clearly defined as a North American nonprofit organization. And I'm happy that, you know, since I've come in and since we've started expanding the executive team and the ambassador program and, you know, joint chat room program, the reach has just become bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we're sitting in something like six countries now, and we initially only had something like three. And I think that's, you know, mind boggling to me that they, you know, it actually shows our point, which is that there are people across the world from varying parts and cultures and ages 
who have arthritis, they need a community and they want support, but they're not able to get support easily. And so if we are part of that pain puzzle, as we said, for National Pain Awareness Week, then that's a really good thing for us. And it's a good thing for future. So if you're interested in it, you should definitely sign up to be involved with us somehow. It's lots of fun. I know, especially because you've kind of been in that experience. For me, it's just always a learning process. Like I learned what it was like to even create an ambassador program and then create a team and then have people apply. And I've learned so much. I know I mentioned on the Sick Boy podcast, like about the compression gloves you told me about and how that literally got me through chemistry and so just like the small things that you learn from people like you learned about the transition clinics i've learned so much as well about the south african organization that exists for juvenile arthritis and so i think we're all just constantly teaching each other that not only are we educating others but we're also educating ourselves we're constantly looking for new and innovative people who want to be able to be part of our mission, which is, you know, we want to empower youth and young people with rheumatic diseases and hopefully in the future, other chronic illnesses, right? Because everyone needs this community. And so we're looking for people to be part of our mission. And I think there are lots of like-minded people out there who would be a suitable fit for our team. And so when in doubt, you can always pop us an email or a DM on social media and our team is super friendly and we just like chatting and hearing about your experiences from wherever you are and whatever they are. I think literally everyone that DMs us, either I answer or someone else answers, like I will literally answer you within 24 hours because I'm so excited that you reached out saying that you're interested. And I've had so many people in the community just want someone to talk to. I know I hopped on a Zoom call with someone who DM me saying that they heard my story from another podcast and they wanted to talk about their arthritis. They don't have a diagnosis about, but they're trying to figure it out. And someone on our team would literally love to talk to you. So if you need support, you just need to talk to someone. We have so many members on our team at this moment, like a really good amount that we're all really happy to talk to you about our arthritis, your arthritis, maybe another condition you might have, how you want to get involved. So just reach out. We're nice people. And we're like probably your age too. I wanted to end off the episode with an advice segment. So what advice would you give to those who are struggling to find a community of individuals living with arthritis? That's an excellent question um, because that was me a few months ago. And I think the biggest thing is to persevere, to stay strong throughout. It's really difficult to be trying medications and doing all sorts of difficult things that kids your age our age don't do normally. And so to adjust to life with a chronic illness is difficult. Um, but I can safely say that looking at things like Take a Pain Check and other local nonprofits and different programs, you find a lot of people who will become lifelong friendships. Whether you're like Natasha and I and living on completely different sides of the world, you know, I know that Natasha will be a person that I can talk to later on if I have a problem about something. And I've met people even at my school who one person who has arthritis and his whole family has arthritis because I started posting things about it or I started to be more confident in asking for assistance. And that's a great friendship. Um, and so the thing is just persevere, stay strong and look it up. Ask your rheumatologist office um, go do some research online. There are plenty of places where you can gain support. 
depending on where you live. And once you're in that support network, life gets way easier from there. Thank you so much, Kabir, for joining me today on this week's podcast episode. We talked about your arthritis journey, medications you've been on, what healthcare is like in South Africa. But then we also talked about the challenges that you faced at school due to the lack of arthritis awareness in the region that you live in. And additionally, we touched upon some of the other chronic illnesses that you have in your experience with the lifestyle changes that you've made. To end off the episode, we discussed the initiatives you're involved in, including the WhatsApp group chat, Arthritis Kids South Africa, and Take a Pain Check. So everyone, make sure to like, comment, subscribe. Check out the couple of links that we did mention in the episode down below, and I'll see everyone in two weeks on Take a Pain Check. Thank you so much, Kabir. Bye. Thanks for having me. Okay.